All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Napoleon once remarked, nothing succeeds in war like a good plan. But the Austrian army had not fully grasped this when planning to meet up with the Russians at Austerlitz, where the two armies were to fight Napoleon himself. The rendezvous was fixed for the 16th of October. Unfortunately, the Austrian planners hadn't realized that their allies, the Russians, still used the old Julian calendar. It's 12 days behind. To victory. The Russian army arrived on time, victory. only to find that the Austrian army had already surrendered. the hopes and dreams of bygone armies. Of their plans, only half ever stood any chance of success. Because war doesn't go to plan. If it did, both sides would win. When IBM makes a major planning blunder, as it did in failing to see the importance of the personal computer, then millions of dollars are lost. When the German general staff makes an error. Millions of lives are lost. So we tend to be much more critical of planning errors in the military uh, than of planning errors in, say, business. Throughout history, commanders had been their own planners. Battles were improvised. It was all up to the general. But in the 19th century, the Germans brought professionalism to the pursuit of war. Germany was a new nation with new borders to defend, but surrounded by old enemies. The romance of war was out. Bureaucracy and technology were in. The Germans saw that railways could mobilize war and bring quick victories. But railways meant timetables, and timetables meant planners. 600 young officers were installed in a brand new college, the German General Staff. A myth had grown up that the German general staff was the greatest organization in world history. Not only the greatest military organization, the greatest organization. These guys had a fantastically high sense of their own professional superiority and regarded the armies of other countries, particularly Britain, uh, as a bit of a joke. But this superiority would soon be put to the test. Germany's rise as an aggressive new superpower had ratcheted up tensions in Europe. She had taken Alsace-Lorraine from the French and canceled a peace treaty with Russia. So France and Russia retaliated by forming a military alliance. Now, if war came, Germany would have to fight both of them. A war on two fronts could be disastrous for Germany. She might have the best army, but it was still smaller than her enemies. 
The man handed this problem was Count Alfred von Schlieffen, a consummate professional. A man who was known to read military history to his daughters at bedtime. The story goes that he was out riding with two of his junior staff officers one day. They see a landscape and one of the officers says, isn't that beautiful? And Schlieffen looks and says, a minor tactical obstacle. Whatever Schlieffen was as a human being is less important than his cultivation of that image. If he hadn't existed, the German General Staff Corps would have created him. In the event of war, Russia, the Great Bear, would be slow to mobilize. France would be quicker. The answer must be for Germany to move swiftly against France, defeat her, and then turn on Russia. But how to do that? France's border was so heavily fortified. Yet there was a chink in her armor. Belgium was neutral, so France had been obliged to leave her border with Belgium undefended. In 1905, von Schlieffen presented his campaign plan. It would knock out France in six weeks. Most of the German army would race through neutral Belgium, outflanking the French fortifications. They would storm into France and encircle Paris before the French knew what had hit them, pushing the French towards the German guns. With France defeated, her ally Russia would be forced to accept peace on German terms. It was a risky plan. It had to go like clockwork. The planners calculated the unloading times of 11,000 trains, the marching rate of every column of soldiers. The conviction grew that by planning every detail, it would work. The major shortcoming of the Schlieffen plan is that what-ifs, yes-buts, and alternate perspectives are never discussed. Officers who might raise those questions are either not appointed to key positions in the general staff, or if they are, they are marginalized by their colleagues. Time was running out for the German general staff. The French and Russian armies were growing bigger all the time. Every year they delayed, the chances of victory grew slimmer. They were being driven to war by fear. Far from there being a kind of hubristic desire for world domination in the minds of German military planners, their concerns were almost all driven by a sense of insecurity and declining strategic strength. By 1914, Germany could wait no longer. When the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, it was a feeble pretext. But it was enough. Germany began the Great War. On the 1st of August, the German army set off for Belgium. Von Schlieffen's plan was underway. 
Yet despite 20 years' work, it was to become the biggest planning blunder of all time. The Schlieffen plan was a gamble. Everything had to go right. And yet, by definition, in war, nothing goes right. Anything that can go wrong will. The Schlieffen plan was to fail at every level. It depended on speed, getting to Paris in just six weeks. Years had been spent calculating the rate at which two million men could march through Belgium. But the planners had blundered. Their calculations were based on professional soldiers. Yet most of the German army were conscripts, shopkeepers, factory workers, bank clerks. They were being asked to do the impossible. You have men who are used to walking to the corner grocery store. Now they have to march 20 or 25 miles a day, every day, in boots that are new and need to be broken in. The general staff officers couldn't calculate blisters. They couldn't calculate dead horses. They couldn't calculate captains and first sergeants that aren't able to deliver hot cooked food to men whose stomachs are used to it. The plan was considered to be independent of these human elements. Because of these human elements, Belgium would soon resemble the biggest traffic jam in history. Roads clogged with exhausted men, broken down vehicles and dead horses. It's hard to imagine any situation in military history in which friction was more likely uh, than the German march through Belgium, which was supposed to happen at unprecedented speed. The planners had made another miscalculation. They had assumed the neutral Belgians would not fight back. But the soldiers began to encounter resistance. At Liège, the Belgians held up the Germans for 10 days. The Schlieffen plan had required them to pass through it in 48 hours. Now, you're a junior officer. And all you know is that you've got to be at point B by 0600 hours. Otherwise, the entire fate of the German Empire is on the line. And you suddenly encounter some resistance. You panic. You think, we have to be at point B by 0600 hours. Therefore, we need to completely dispel any resistance by making some examples. Uh, shoot those two men over there. The brutal way in which the Germans put down Belgian resistance had an unexpected consequence. In Britain, the tabloid press branded them as beastly Huns. Early filmmakers dramatized real atrocities. The plan was handing Germany's enemies a propaganda gift never envisaged by von Schlieffen. These thousands of civilian deaths had massive political consequences for the war as a whole. Nothing did more to mobilize British and later American opinion against the Germans than the atrocities perpetrated against Belgian civilians. By invading Belgium, von Schlieffen had also naively ignored politics. He dismissed a European agreement to uphold Belgian neutrality as simply a piece of paper. 
it's one of the great underestimates of modern history because it underestimates the significance of giving Britain this wonderful pretext for getting involved in the war. The Germans were in denial about the implications of British intervention. Uh, and in that sense, one can see the limits uh, of German war planning, the myopia, really, with which the whole plan was constructed. Now, the Germans were fighting the French and the British. All plans for a quick victory had collapsed. It was now a war of attrition that Germany could not possibly win. Millions of lives were to be lost. Four years of war lay ahead. The Schlieffen Plan, the first big design for war, had failed. Failed strategically because it had ignored the consequences of invading a neutral country. Failed tactically because it had asked its soldiers to do the impossible. Military planners try to produce a plan which reduces the impact of friction. Those are all the uncertainties and the imponderables on the plan. But by doing so, they sometimes produce a plan which is in a sense bigger than them, which allows no margin for any of those errors which they've tried to massage out of it. World War I marked a turning point. By now, war had become so complex that planners had become the brain of every army. Like crystal ball gazers, peering into the future, trying to deduce the enemy's intentions. The illusion was that the brightest and best, working together in a group, would lead to success. But the analysis of failed plans shows that this is not necessarily the case. That there are dangers in group planning. Psychologists call it group think. The great danger is this propensity for people engaged in a single task to see things the same way. To make assumptions and heartily agree with them like a bunch of, shall we say, singing Presbyterians, <laughs> to heartily agree with the assumptions and then, above all, stop trying to reevaluate them. The dangers of groupthink were to be vividly illustrated a generation later, resulting in one of Britain's most humiliating episodes of World War II. In March 1941, an extraordinary situation had arisen. RAF bombers had been presented with a gift beyond their wildest dreams. Two German battleships, the Scharnhorst and the Neisenau, had called into the French port of Brest for repairs, and they'd become trapped. Yet night after night, the bombers missed their target. Churchill wanted the ships destroyed. Sooner or later, they would have to make a run for it. If the RAF couldn't bomb them in harbor, then the Navy must sink them at sea. The British began preparing a contingency plan. Contingency planning is planning to meet a variety of circumstances which you can't predict when you're making the plan. Uh, there are, if you like, a series of recipes that you have to produce without being quite sure what the ingredients are going to be or exactly who's coming to dinner. 
the Germans would probably head for home. But which way? The long westerly route around Scotland or the unthinkable, a dash up the English Channel? The Navy planners agreed on one thing, that the enemy would not take on the might of the Royal Navy by sailing through the Straits of Dover in broad daylight. No one questioned this assumption. So the Navy left nine World War I motor torpedo boats and six aging destroyers to guard the Straits. Such a flimsy defense, it could work only at night. To make matters worse, the first sea lord, Dudley Pound, ordered the home fleet to stay at their base in Scotland, leaving the channel all but undefended. People like Pound hadn't got the Nelson touch. Um, they weren't the men that the, the, the Navy had had in previous centuries. If the Germans had the frontery to try to pass through the channel, I think he felt that it was really the job of the RAF to take care of things. The Royal Navy was passing the buck. Over 300 RAF bombers were to guard the channel as far as Dover, although there was little chance of their hitting a fast-moving ship. The RAF's trump card was 36 state-of-the-art torpedo bombers. But the planners sent most of them off to guard the Atlantic route. The code word Fuller would activate the British defence plan. Only senior officers were notified. And they were instructed to keep their copies of the plan under lock and key. It's very tempting to treat the enemy as a passive, inert object, which is simply going to be the victim of your cunning plan. It's very hard to credit the enemy with equal, if not greater, intelligence and therefore with a capacity to work out a plan which is better. And the German Navy did have their own plan, Operation Cerebus. They would sail brazenly up the channel in broad daylight. Hitler felt that with a severe push, the old lion, which is you know, one way of describing Britain at the time, would be revealed for what it was, which is basically uh, stuffed with sawdust. Nearly a year passed. Then on February the 2nd, 1942, British reconnaissance picked up German minesweeping activity in the channel. Something was up. Alarm bells should have been ringing. The RAF on red alert. But nothing happened. Vice Admiral Ramsey, in charge of defending the Straits of Dover, decided to act independently. He ordered in the only spare aircraft the Navy's own six swordfish. They were World War I torpedo bombers and nicknamed string bags. But they were better than nothing. We were going to Manston to stand by to attack the German ships should they come up through the channel. We knew very well that if they did, they would be very heavily escorted. But of course we assumed it would be a night attack and the swordfish was remarkably good for that sort of thing. I mean, it wasn't meant to take on enemy fighters in broad daylight. Nine days later, on the 11th of February at 9pm, 
the Scharnhorst and Neisenau slipped undetected out of Brest. Operation Fuller should have been activated. According to the plan, three surveillance planes were supposed to be patrolling the channel. But each one returned to base with equipment failure, and no one thought to mention this to Admiral Ramsey, the man in charge. At 1.15 a.m., the German ships entered the English Channel. 360 miles to go. By now, RAF bombers from airfields up and down the south coast should have been scrambled. Destroyers and torpedo boats should have been on their way. But no one had uttered the code word Fuller. At 8.35 a.m., Ramsey, with no reason to be suspicious, stood down his swordfish pilots. They'd been on alert all night. He was not to know that the Scharnhorst and Neisenau were only 100 miles from Dover, hugging the French coast. At 9 a.m., radar stations began to pick up some unusual activity out at sea. Although there was every likelihood that the radar signals were Scharnhorst and the Gneisnau, the British acted with remarkable slowness. Nobody seemed to make the imaginative leap that was needed, that actually this was fuller, this was it. One lone RAF officer at Biggin Hill feared that these radar dots were moving too fast to be ordinary ships. Unable to reach anyone on the telephone, he had dispatched a reconnaissance flight. The pilots confirmed his suspicions. But just to make sure, he sent for a book of German ship silhouettes. It was on the other side of the aerodrome. As he desperately tried to pass on a warning to someone who would listen, he met a brick wall. No one at RAF Fighter Command seemed to recognize the code word. They thought Fuller was the name of an officer. At last, the ship's silhouette book was found. Operation Fuller depended on everyone responding quickly, but the people on the ground had no idea of the threat. Even the man at the top, Air Chief Marshal Lee Mallory, was handing out medals and couldn't be disturbed. By now, 300 bombers and 500 fighters should have been in the air. Nor could any warning get through to the Navy. The line was busy. The Scharnhorst and Neisenau, surrounded by Messerschmitts and destroyers, had been expecting a fierce battle. They were now less than 50 miles away from Dover. You know what we're thinking? The British are still sleeping, you know, because they didn't... Uh, no idea, you know, the Scharnhorst and the Kneiser could pass in the channel, you know, on the British coast. Finally, at 11 o'clock, Admiral Ramsey got the shocking news. But to send his ancient swordfish aircraft to attack in broad daylight was suicide. He called the first sea lord, asking that they be spared. Dudley Pan replied with the old naval cliché, the navy 
will attack the enemy wherever and whenever he is found, uh, which was a bit off, really, because he had refused to uh, risk one of his battleships. Esmond, commanding officer of the Swordfish Squadron, was notified. The man responsible for sinking the Bismarck, he had been at Buckingham Palace just the day before, receiving a distinguished service order. Immediately before we took off, I said to my observer Max, I was an air gunner at all events, if I were you, I'd blow up your May West now, because in my opinion, we shall have to swim back. The Dover guns fired for the first time in the war. But as luck would have it, a P-Super had descended. They hit nothing. The Scharnhorst and the Neisenau had now passed Dover. They were about to escape into the North Sea. It was not until 15 hours after the enemy had left Brest that the RAF woke up to what was happening. The message finally got through to Air Chief Marshal Lee Mallory. He activated Operation Fuller. But where were the plans? At Biggin Hill, they were locked in a safe. The intelligence officer had gone off on holiday with the key. No one knew which RAF fighter and bomber squadrons were to go into action. Instead, six flimsy biplanes, not even part of the plan, were to try to stop the might of the German Navy. Once the German fighters started attacking, it seems to all happen at once, of course. The whole thing seems to be compressed within no time at all. You hear the stuff hitting the aircraft, but you don't get any sense of impact. I hadn't been fired at by ACAC fire before, and of course, every I think it's every tenth shell or bullet or whatever it may be, is a tracer. And it was fascinating to watch. It comes up so slowly. And then, of course, when it gets to you, it then accelerates and it flashes by. It was really quite spectacular. News of the German breakout had reached Whitehall. Churchill was furious. What had happened to Operation Fuller? My air gunner was killed in the second attack, Johnson. I tried to, to move his body with the idea of perhaps climbing over and crawling into the, the after cockpit and manning the gun, but uh, the aircraft was being thrown around so much in avoiding action, and I couldn't move Johnson anyway, he was jammed. We closed to about 1,200 yards, the best dropping distance for a torpedo, and we dropped our torpedo. Unsurprisingly, no hits were scored by their torpedoes. In the hours that followed, hundreds of British aircraft searched the North Sea fruitlessly for their quarry. The Germans had escaped.
Back home, the German Navy celebrated the success of Operation Cerebus. They had scored a remarkable propaganda victory thanks to RAF incompetence. From the reconnaissance planes that should have spotted them to the bombers that should have sunk them. But Operation Fuller had been misconceived from the start, based on the delusion that the enemy would never dare to take them on in their own backyard. In Operation Fuller, it seems to me that the planners were essentially painting a picture that they believed, that they hoped, and that, that they came to uh, expect and depend on, in a way. Um, the Germans were going to do a certain thing, and when the Germans didn't do this certain thing, they did their own thing, the British could not respond to it. All six swordfish had been destroyed in an attempt to rescue a failed plan. It was a humiliating episode that will always be remembered for the needless sacrifice of 13 brave men. My air gunner's mother, I can always remember, Johnson's mother said to me, of course, I know he's alive, he's such a good swimmer. What could you say? You can't say he's full of holes lying at the bottom of the sea. Gentlemen, at 0800 hours this morning, Goldmark forces invaded Greenland in a combined air and land offensive. As a result of this, we are now at war. Successful military plans can only be created by officers who understand the real chaos of the battlefield. The military has learned from past mistakes that planners sitting hundreds or thousands of miles away can be divorced from reality. Three CAC continue in their hasty defence, meanwhile four CAC is moving in a position to attack the war. The days of the career planner, pioneered by von Schlieffen, are over. Today's officers rotate every two years between staff and command posts in the field to become familiar with what the military call the fog of war. Things always work out differently than you think. That doesn't mean you can't plan reasonably for their occurrence. Indeed, you must plan reasonably. The mistake is psychological. The mistake is psychological to think that because you've planned it well, reality will cooperate and it will go well. But the second psychological reason is even more important, and that is this. If you train officers to follow plans and the reality changes so that the plans don't work, do they have the capacity to innovate, to imagine, and be flexible in solving the problem? The wheel has come full circle. It's now accepted that it's the commander on the battlefield who makes the difference. A lesson learned by America 20 years ago. In November 1979, after Ayatollah Khomeini had overthrown the Shah, the American embassy in Tehran was captured by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Fifty-two Americans were held hostage in the embassy. The U.S. government was completely taken by surprise. The impulse to act was overwhelming. The Air Force wanted to bomb them back to the Stone Age. The Army wanted to land the 18th Airborne Corps. The Marines wanted to assault all the oil rigs in the Persian Gulf. And the Navy wanted to bombard them with the 
long-range aircraft and whatever else was necessary. National honor was at stake. While diplomatic avenues were pursued, President Jimmy Carter was already exploring other options. When the president was first briefed on our capability, we told him we could not do it. The risk of the hostages was too great. After all, the basic mission is to bring them home, not get them killed. Nevertheless, Carter insisted that the United States must be able to rescue her citizens. So secretly, the Joint Chiefs of Staff began putting together a task force to do just that. Delta, the top secret special forces unit responsible for hostage rescue, had only just been formed. They'd not been tested in the field before. The commander on the ground would be Delta's founder, 50-year-old Charging Charlie Beckwith. The CIA could not assist them with intelligence. Their head of station in Iran was one of the hostages. Delta Force knew the embassy compound contained 14 buildings, but had no blueprints. All they had was the television news. What is physically happening around the embassy? Who are the hostage takers? What are they armed with? There were sentries outside the wall who were armed and could either engage us on, with fire or uh, sound an alarm. So we practiced shooting those sentries continuously. Highly skilled pilots would be required to get Delta Force into Iran undetected. The Air Force were already planning their route in. To get Delta out of Tehran, helicopters would be needed. Unbelievably, America didn't have a helicopter squadron that could fly undercover missions. So the search began for suitable pilots. But a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs set alarm bells ringing for Logan Fitch. I felt that he knew that if this mission succeeded, there'd be enough glory to go around for everyone, and he wanted to make absolutely certain that all of the four services got their share of the glory uh, without regard to who was most appropriate. The most skilled helicopter pilots the U.S. possessed were Air Force, men who'd flown search and rescue missions in Vietnam. But the Pentagon planners rejected them. The Army had a role uh, the primary role in rescuing the hostages, the Navy would provide air cover and would provide the ship from which they, they, they launched, the helicopters would launch. Uh, the Air Force was clearly in a key role. This left the Marine Corps out. So the Marine Corps sends a Marine Corps colonel to try to push their nose in the door and pushed his nose in the door they did. Marine pilots would fly the helicopters even though they hadn't been trained for such a mission. Once you decide to use Marine Corps helicopter pilots, who cannot refuel in flight, it becomes necessary to stop somewhere in the desert. Well, then the next question becomes, where shall we stop? And what the planning process decided to do is to stop at a site which later became Desert One. Desert One, a remote location in Iran, had been earmarked by the CIA years earlier when they thought they might have to extract the Shah. It had the advantage of a main road running through it, 
but that was far from ideal for this operation. It was very clear that even if they got the Desert One undetected, the possibility of being discovered on the ground by the normal traffic flow that went through this road was very, very great indeed. And so more and more complex it becomes. In the words of Winston Churchill, the terrible ifs accumulate. We rehearsed assaulting buildings. We rehearsed moving from the Chancery building through a breach in the wall to the soccer field. I mean, we rehearsed every single minute detail that we could possibly think of. We did that continuously. A surgical operation requires very precise knowledge of building plans and how entrance and exit can be made from those buildings. Door construction the locks on the doors, even the way the doors open, the way the corridors ran. We were sort of going in blind. We did not know where the hostages were. We had a pretty good idea, but we didn't know. And I think that was the greatest weakness in our plan. The planning of Operation Eagle Corps was dominated by secrecy. No one outside the task force had an inkling of the daring mission being planned. This was an oversight. The normal process of military operations is to examine the plan with what we call murder boards. Then you've got problems with their rear core area. So this is a good plan, but it's incomplete. Now, what a murder board is, is a group of experienced officers who are outside the planning process, who are brought in at various points and then, of course, at the end, in order to analyze the various elements of the plan to make sure that they are operationally, tactically, and strategically sound. People get too close to these things. They get too close to their own concepts, their, 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 their own pictures that they have in their heads. Operation Eagle Claw was staggeringly complex. On night one, the Delta team would fly in from an island off Oman in C-130 aircraft. Helicopters would fly in from an aircraft carrier in the Gulf. They would meet at Desert One, where the helicopters would refuel from the C-130s. The helicopters would fly the Delta team to a hiding place in the hills outside Tehran. On night two, Delta would be driven into Tehran in a convoy of trucks. They would assault the embassy, free the hostages, and escape to a soccer stadium. There, the helicopters would pick them up and fly them out. Frankly, if it was going to succeed, that was going to be a will of God. And if it was going to fail and it was going to end in, in uh, uh, a gunfight and a lot of people dying, then I went in to die with my friends. The five-month hostage crisis was embarrassing the presidency. It was damaging his chances of re-election. President Carter decided to give the rescue mission the go-ahead. That same week, General Vaught had an ominous conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. General Jones came to my office on Sunday morning and said, I'd like you to prepare a comprehensive failure plan. Uh, and uh, I said, well, sir, I must say I don't know exactly what that is. I've never done that. Uh, I spent all my life trying to prepare comprehensive success plans. General Vaught reluctantly drew up a list of eventualities that would cause the mission to abort. 
it was to be a bad omen. Six of the eight helicopters had to make it to Desert One for Operation Eagle Claw to succeed. Beautiful night, absolutely gorgeous, nice partial moon, starlight. Compared to training, this was the piece of cake. Easiest night we'd ever flown on. 140 miles inside Iran, one helicopter got into trouble. A warning light in the cockpit indicated that the rotor blade would fail but only after 79 flying hours. However, the helicopter was abandoned. Now there were seven. Delta Force were already arriving at Desert One, aboard the C-130s. The planner's choice of a site next to a main road was now to catch up with them. I stepped off the airplane, through all the dust and all the noise and everything, I looked over to my right, and lo and behold, there's this new, modern Mercedes bus with all the lights on it. There are a lot of people on board, and I thought, what in the world is going on? It was the nightly passenger bus traveling to Tehran. Delta Force had come to rescue hostages. Now they had 44 of their own. The remaining seven helicopters were still heading towards Desert One. We're cruising along. I'm getting ready to eat dinner. I want a box of sea rations. But my co-pilot looks ahead and says, better look out there. Looks like a fog bank. Not a fog bank, but a suspended dust storm, common in the desert. It caught the pilots off guard. They had trained for good visibility flying conditions and had no plan for what they would do if they lost visual contact. The helicopters became separated. Only 145 miles from Desert One, one Marine pilot decided to turn back. Now there were six. You've got to have the mindset that you're going to get there come hell or high water. That's the way it's done. And we didn't, we didn't put in eight so that a flyable one can go back. We put in it if it breaks down, completely breaks down, then we have the backups to compensate, but not good airplanes go in the wrong direction. Six helicopters, the minimum plan to take Delta on towards Tehran. At Desert One, Wade Ishimoto and another soldier were setting up a roadblock when they saw headlights in the distance. Rubio looks back at me and he says, sir, and I said, yes, I see him. And I said, Rubio, grab one of your light anti-tank weapons. The lights came down on me. I knew they clearly could see me. I had my hand up. I hollered over at Rubio, cock your law. Yes, sir. Ready? Yes, sir. Fire. The next words on my mouth were, holy mackerel, a fuel truck. We hit a 5,000-gallon uh, fuel truck in the middle of the Iranian desert. And now fuel was venting upwards in flames at, at least 90, 100 feet into the air. But with the arrival of the first helicopters, Colonel Beckwith was still confident. 
the feeling generally was quite good. We were glad to be there. Everything was going well. Colonel Beckwith came up to me at one point and slapped me on the back and says, God damn, it's going great, isn't it, Logan? And I said, yes, sir, just fine. When the remaining helicopters finally arrived, a disagreement was to split the ranks. My wingman comes over to me and says, I have a second stage hydraulic failure. I said, okay, check it out. It could still go on on one pump and the pilot indicated to me that he was willing to do that. But the flight leader said it was unsafe, so he overruled the pilot. All the hydraulic fluid is gone, the pump is burnt up. So we have an aircraft that is not capable of going. This is what we like to call the Super Bowl for us, the military Super Bowl. There's not gonna be any tomorrow here. We need to do this thing now or we're not gonna do it. Seifert refused to allow the helicopter to fly. Colonel Beckwith had to make a crucial decision. The plan was failing fast. Could he make it work? He had two options, to overrule the helicopter flight leader or reduce his force and go with five helicopters. Think about that, six C-130s with their engines running, the helicopters with their engines running, no, no lights on the ground, no communication, sand blowing everywhere. It's in this crucible that this man makes this decision and he looks around and it's all coming apart. Beckwith aborted the mission. Delta Force loaded back onto the C-130s. But as the helicopters taxied out of their way, one of the pilots became disorientated. I heard and felt a thump, a series of thumps, actually. And my first thought was that we were under attack. Someone started yelling, get out of here, get out of here. You could see the flames and the fire advancing from the front to the back of the cargo compartment. And I knew in my mind then that we wouldn't all make it off. We ran away from the airplane, and it, I mean, you can't imagine a 4th of July like that. There was fuel on board, there were explosives, ammunition. I remember thinking hell must look like that. Eight dead American servicemen and 44 bemused Iranians were left behind at Desert One. It was America's most public humiliation since Vietnam. Even as Delta was making its way back to the US, Iranian television was selling pictures of the dead men all over the world. Late yesterday, I canceled a carefully planned operation which was underway in Iran. Operation Eagle Claw was the last nail in Jimmy Carter's presidency. The rescue mission was politically motivated and politically flawed. If the Americans had got to Tehran, a frightening death toll amongst Iranians would have had grave international consequences. And even if their plans had resulted in the rescue of the hostages, it would have been to no avail. 
had it gone flawlessly, had everything worked perfectly, and had the embassy personnel been extracted, they'd have walked down the street and picked up any one of the remaining 7,000 combination Americans and, and Western European nationals and done the thing all over again. So here you have an operation conducted in what seems to me without very, with very little uh, appreciation uh, for what would happen after the operation itself. It was economic blockades that forced the Iranians to release the hostages nine months later. Operation Eagle Claw was the ultimate planning disaster. It collapsed even before contact with the enemy. But in the end, all plans fail. None survives the chaos of war. As Napoleon recognized, it's the man in the plan who counts. However good the planning and skilled the planners, it gets transformed when it meets real war. And successful commanders are the people who are able to pick up a plan in difficulties, a plan which may have looked very good, and to inject into it the human spirit, which is the, the business of the commander, and to turn that plan into a project which is really going to win the battle or win the war. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.